Welcome to MMO, the Mike Mike and Oscar show. They cover films then win the gold, but now we're talking picks up films for all of these shows. From Toy Story 1 up through Toy Story 4, this is the MMO, the Pixar Rewatch Show. And we're back. Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. And how's this for a radical change in gear? I'm not so much excited for this recording as I am the next one, because this one, we're going from Tarantino to MMOW. We had a little break there. I had yeah. to switch gears to do a news and information show, and then to Pixar. But our next one, this is a Pixar episode. We're covering Coco, yeah. uh, and then we're going right to Tarantino after this. So that's what I'm most excited for. So this is what you call honest to a fault, people. <laughs> we're going to discuss a beloved film to an entire you know continent of people. Yeah, but somebody. <laughs> Is not as hyped up. Well, we're gonna him. see. We're gonna see which brains we enter this conversation. All right, well, leave I, it with. I'm hyped up for this movie. I'm living in the moment. I'm present. I like this movie. Yeah. I have a problem with stalkers, but we'll get into it. I, I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host, also Mike. This we're is doing the Coco. Happier person. <laughs> Also, Mike, we're doing Coco. Uh, if you've not joined us before for one of these Pixar rewatch series entries, we are almost at the tail end of them. We have been reviewing the entirety of the Pixar yep. animated uh, series movies, their entire Pixar franchise there, starting with Toy Story 1. And we're doing this in the lead up to Toy Story 4, because we expect that not only to be one of the biggest animated films of all time when it comes out in later this month, my God, but also because we, as an Oscars podcast, fully expect it to be competing in at least the animated feature category, if not others come Oscars time for 2020 so if you've not joined us before for a pixar animated series entry what these shows are is much like our oscar sprint profiles if you just heard us review rocket man most recently for one of those examples there are two reviews or two pieces of a review under one umbrella the first half of every pixar episode is going to be a spoiler free non-spoiler half we talk about the production we talk about the box office we talk about specs and we are differentiating the non-spoiler segment here in these pixar episodes by talking about the history of the pixar company at large how these films came to be kind of a snapshot in time where the company was when these films came out all that jazz we have a spoiler warning which is not going to be the spoiler warning from our oscar sprint profiles it's usually just a clip from the movie itself on the second half the last half of all of these pixar films that's the spoiler filled section that's where you're going to get all your twists and turns the spoilers we concentrate on heartwarming moments on moments of happiness we concentrate on our favorites our highlights our lowlights and we also start the spoiler section of all these pixar episodes by talking about the 22 rules of screenwriting success that pixar had released a couple years ago that have permeated their way through screenwriting classes across the country we line up one rule with every one pixar movie now also we haven't been going necessarily picture by picture or in chronological order we've jumped around a little bit covering franchise by franchise with that though coco is one of the most recent pixar films the second most recent since the incredibles 2 came out last year it's not the end of the line yet we have the toy stories we've held off on doing two and three because we're going to do those closer to toy story for a time and also we have a big cars episode which is is not only the most films uh, aside from Toy Story, the biggest franchise within the Pixar umbrella, but it also has the meatiest backstory as far as the Pixar company, so that'll be coming to you closer to Toy Story 4's debut as well. That's a lot of words for me. I'm going to kick it over to also Mike, who's going to tell you about the cast and crew for this movie, Coco, which is how we start every non-spoiler section for 
these episodes. Yes, Coco was directed by Lee Unkrich and Adrian Molina. Unkrich co-directed Toy Story 2, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, and Toy Story 3. So he had some big hits to his name. Is he sneaky, more famous in the zeitgeist, or more familiar... Is his work more familiar, I guess is a normal way of asking this, than someone like Pete Docter, another one of these big names we've come across? Absolutely. Yeah, He's a sneaky so MVP yeah. for Disney Pixar right now. And uh, every movie that he did was a monstrous hit, and it really was a, a critical hit as yeah, well. So I agree. Adrian Molina wrote the short Dante's Lunch for Pixar, and he'd work with Unkrich on most of those films, whether it was in the storyboard department, as one of the screenwriters. He was very much involved there, worked his way up, Unkrich and him. He actually brought... Molina on about a year and a half into production, and then they kind of, you know, handled it as a two-hander there. As for the cast, we have young Anthony Gonzalez voicing Miguel. At the time he was hired, Mike, at 10 years old, after he was like the understudy. He was just a kid putting a voice, any voice, to the animation. And one really genuinely happy moment. They filmed it and everything. They gave a kid a big present, and inside was a plaque that said, you are hired, or you got the part. Oh, so it's really nice. nice. And the kid is really... billion dollar company yeah. giving a kid a little plaque for four fifty. dollars It's what the plaque <laughs> said. No, that's a very, I'm being a curmudgeon. That's a very nice gesture. But the kid liked it. Yeah. So the kid was like, what's this? Socks. <laughs> no, he's just like, I got, I got the part. It changed my that's life. Awesome. And he since had 12 additional IMDb credits. Very he's cool. He's been on a bunch of stuff. So the kid actually started a career that's with awesome. that one. So that worked out. We have Mozart in the Jungle himself. Gael Garcia Bernal is Hector. You ever watched that show? Loved it. Oh, you did? Yeah, I remember for, we for talked a about while, this a long, and long while I, ago. I think I'm a season behind, though. I don't think I watched the last season. I haven't watched any TV. Yeah. We're watching so much Pixar, so much Tarantino. We're barely hanging on with popular new stuff. <laughs> Game of Thrones, last. I got all this TV I got to watch. I'm hearing about Fleabag now and yeah, Big, Big yeah. Little Lies. I didn't even catch up with the other stuff I was behind Still on. Still haven't watched Barry. No, I haven't watched Barry. Gotta get on that. No chance. So Mozart in the Jungle is like the 15th TV show I got to binge. <laughs> it's a series that I love. And I loved it. Veep, etc. So Gael Garcia Bernal, uh, he, who sang at the Oscars, he is Hector. We have Tough Cop. This is where I remember him. From Miss Congeniality, Benjamin Bratt yeah. is Ernesto de la Cruz. Channeling his father for this part, which was interesting. That makes sense. Battlestar Galactica's Edward James Olmos is Chicaron. Can't reach these kids. <laughs> so that wasn't you doing an almost. That was you no. doing a South Park parody yeah, impression yeah. of almost. How do I reach these kids? <laughs> that was uh, Edward James almost character from whatever South Park was parodying. Stand and deliver was that stand right? and deliver. I think. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Jane the Virgin's Jamie Camille is Papa, and Fluffy himself, comedian Gabriel Iglesias, is the clerk. Mike Coco also stars Alana Ubach, Renee Victor, Herbert Seguenza, Alfonso Arau, Lombardo Boyar, Anna Ophelia Margulia, and Sofia Espanosa. I am sorry. Good job with those names. That was I did my best. And it was I Stand just, and Deliver. I just looked at yeah. it. Yes, Stand and Deliver. Mike, you have the history of the Pixar company. Yeah, so what's been a common theme amongst many common themes during these Pixar backstory segments? Animation. Did I get it right? That's, it's been one of them, yeah. I was, I was gonna, actually, yeah, that's it. Mind reader. Um, 
And not that it's hard, I guess, but yeah. <laughs> What's been a common theme amongst many other common themes? They totally threw me off my game there. I uh, thought least... that was the obvious stupid joke. <laughs> well, to it's make. not the animation, but it's how long what the kind animation. Of setups are you writing over there? <laughs> it's it's how, how many shoes? It's What's no. a common theme of all these animated films? <laughs> Computers. Animation. Not the animation, but how long it's taken. How many the years animation of schooling did you go <laughs> to be worked on? Can I get through this? Eight years. <laughs> Even in our very first episode, we talked about how seeds of what would become the animation for Toy Story had actually begun being worked on about 20 years prior to what ended up making it on screen. The biggest reason for this has been that, as we've said, Pixar is more than an animation company, Michael. Mm -hmm. They're a creation company, as they have literally had to create the technology needed yes. to put these images on screen for us. So it was a surprise to me, it may be a surprise for you to hear, that the animation for Coco actually only began in 2016, about a year or 18 months prior to it hitting the screen. It suggests that Pixar may not have had to create much in terms of new technology for the animation on this film, because as director and creator of the film, Lee Unkrich suggests in an interview discussing the film, the total time covering initial pitch to finished film was still about six years long, Yeah, meaning that most of the time must have been spent storyboarding and researching the Dia de los Muertos holiday. Field rather trip than to Mexico. That's in there as well. Times three. Research was exactly what went into the production here, as The Hollywood Reporter has a whole story about the backstory and production of this, uh, including director Lee Unkrich getting inspired for the film Coco during his riding the boat ride at the Mexico Pavilion in Epcot during 2011. When's the last time you were in Epcot, Michael? Never. Never been. Never been Epcot? Never been. Pixar, you hear that? We need to go on research for you. It's about time you send us. <laughs> Why don't we take field trips, Mike? <laughs> this sucks. Well, that wasn't only the only field trip they took, but this started as an inception point due to that boat ride in the Mexico Pavilion at Epcot in 2011. What does ride... it smell like inside of Epcot, Mike? <laughs> the, the ride featured a skeleton mariachi band, apparently, and the idea was said to be quickly given the green light by then-still-Pixar head honcho John Lasseter, production would then begin, more on Lasseter at the end of this segment. Unkrich, for the most part, knew about the importance of the holiday, Dia de los Muertos, and even more importantly, wanted to treat the entire process with respect, knowing that this would be Pixar's first film centered on Latino and Mexican culture. So while he did some things to integrate himself in the culture itself, as Mike just alluded to, more of those famous Pixar research trips down to Mexico with his team, there were some missteps along the way as well. Yeah. As such, Unkrich tried to come up with a name of the movie, couldn't really do it, so he settled on Dia de los Muertos. Well, like Disney does for all of their IP, they went to have this trademark. Can you imagine Pixar's Day of the Dead? <laughs> like Pixar's zombie movie? What the hell? It's also really out of touch because Dia de los Muertos, if you take any Spanish class throughout your life, yeah. and here we are nestled in the Northeast, far away from any, ki any kind of Mexican culture, authentic Mexican culture from this country itself, even we know that's a big deal. That's a huge holiday. It's a big deal, but we also have the wrong perception of that day. For us, it feels like Halloween, right? right? We think it's Mexican Halloween, mm -hmm. which is a very, you know, aggravating misconception mm -hmm. to many of that culture. Right. It's it's a family day. It's a day yeah. of remembrance. It's a day to honor your dead. That would be like a German film company wanting to trademark July 4th for the name of a movie they're making about American culture. Can you imagine? That would probably outrage a lot of people here, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, rightfully so, Disney tries to trademark Dia de los Muertos for the name of this movie, really out of touch and bizarrely out of touch for a company that's usually in touch, I would say. Mm -hmm. That's my opinion. But they try to trademark it. It caused obvious outrage, ir irritated people enough to the point where 20,000 plus signatures of a petition and a Twitter backlash forced the company to rethink their title. All that being said, Mike, do you think the Swiss or the Swedish or 
excuse me, wherever Midsummer is. You think they're very angry right now out uh, there in the... Uh, did, uh, I, I don't know how to approach that because I don't know if that's a real thing. Out there in the somewhere where the cult, cult aisles are. They are they're having a great... Isn't that a real thing? I know what the market... Uh, anyway, they're having a great marketing campaign. That's what I was just going to say. They're having a great marketing campaign for that, but that's neither here nor there for now, but I can't wait to review that I like movie. neither here nor there. That's where I live. Also the tough... Purgatory area of trying to mess Didn't you up. Didn't see Ari Aster coming up in the Coco conversation today. <laughs> Didn't see that. Ankrich should be credited, though, with being very mindful of the fact that he knew he couldn't tell a Latino-centric story on his own, at least not effectively, so he brought on Adrian Molina, who, like Mike just told you, worked on story with Unkrich through the Toy Story 3 production and would quickly throw himself into the backstory of Coco All Told, the production of it anyway, as Molina was described in Carolyn Giardina's piece, that again with The Hollywood Reporter, as someone who would be constantly tinkering with the story and submitting possible script pages to Unkrich simply because he, quote, had to get them out of my system. Coco would go on to be yet another smash hit moneymaker for Pixar and Disney, but it would also mark the end of an era for the company as just one day prior to the film's U.S. release, longtime head and either first or second most important name to Pixar's survival at all, depending on how you feel about Steve Jobs funding the company to keep yeah. it alive, John Lasseter announced he would be taking a leave of absence from the company for the first time ever for having, quote, had a number of difficult conversations that have been very painful to me. It's never easy to face your missteps, but it's the only way to learn from them, end quote. This statement was released from Lasseter on November 21st and would actually be mere hours later where both Vanity Fair and Deadline started revealing some of the allegations as well as what life was like working under Lasseter as a lower employee, uh, specifically for some of them of the female gender. A scandal which would erupt into a full-fledged controversy about a week later as it was intimated that Disney was made aware of the allegations against Lasseter made by lower-level employees at an earlier date, but were not so quick to act at all. So we covered this back on a Hollywood Hot Takes episode about a year, a couple years ago, yeah. year and a half ago, whatever yeah. it was, and we talked a lot about it in the middle of the Me Too movement. Uh, something that we threw our support for. And mm -hmm. I think that was the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, this is not the podcast to derail the momentum and the celebration of a movie like Coco, I think, and to get into it further. Mike and I, in all honesty, we had like a 45-minute to an hour discussion on how the hell we can honor both the Me Too movement and honor a movie like Coco both at the same time without dishonoring people who care about both issues and it, it's really it's really impossible yeah it's not it's it's not fun it sucks to be i mean to be blunt it just and sucks the, the purpose of these podcasts and these pixar episodes is to concentrate on the work done by pixar in terms of animation and movie making so, that's where our focus is we're choosing specifically we had to bring it up because it's part of the lineage it's part of the portion of pixar we knew going into this series we're going to have to mention it but like mike said we're not going to editorialize on it it's not the place to pass comment on it here uh we've done so in the past already so we're moving on and just talking about yes. coco the movie from here on out so we can be a goofy idiots once again somehow which is what we do best yes <laughs> so a few inspirations of of the film came from places I wouldn't expect. Miyazaki's Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle. That I get, Mike. Yeah, I can see that. John Wick being a For real? influence that everybody's citing in every article, including one on Slash Film, The World of Coco. Uh, 
I was shocked. Because of the purple and blue tones? Yeah. I had to search it out because it's on the Wikipedia page, and I like to go a step further yeah. and figure out who's talking about it. And basically they said the wild colors in the background shots of John Wick with all the lighting, and they called it crazy colors, quote, crazy colors <laughs> by Mrs. Feinberg there, who we're going to mention more in the animation innovations, but... Go figure. They use John Wick as a major point of influence. I can see it with like the Blu-ray covers. If yeah. I close my eyes and picture the the, the land posters. of the dead and the, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. John Wick, so I guess that makes sense. Crazy colors, yeah. both movies. Uh, so I had to ask you this question, Mike. So the Day of the Dead almost got copyrighted by Disney. Yeah. Like, how do they even file for that? But hold on. But what's next? Like, Happy Apple Plus presents Easter Kids? <laughs> what the hell's going on there? How do they even file for that? Disney presents Arbor Day. I don't know. I don't know why they didn't get rejected outright. Uh, well, I do know. They probably know people. Um, so that makes sense, I guess. But I don't know how that would even go about. I'm amazed they got anywhere with it. I'm more amazed that there was enough watchdog groups that are keeping their eye on Disney's legal department to see their trademark filings and reporting on those to the extent that a petition was started with 20,000 plus signatures prior to the trademark being approved. Exactly. That's amazing to me. Now, Change.org has gotten a lot of flack for our... Change Game of Thrones! Yeah, petitions, change Game of Thrones, because we don't like the fact that you ended it on a negative or you didn't, you know, foreshadow this big character's change enough. And therefore, I want my TV show the way I want it. Right. And a lot of people could think that way. That's fine. Uh I name my kid after one of the characters that went heel. (laughs) Fine. I get it. I actually just asked on Twitter, like, yesterday or the day before has a change.org petition ever actually affected anything right. in the entertainment we're industry wondering but here's yeah. a prime example right. where just the start of it tells the people at disney to just all right this is dumb and this is wrong it worked or this is and it worked now if you go by disney's statement their company statement they made it sound like oh we're gonna change the name of it so they're doing a favor to everyone by saying that they're going to back off it. Not so much. We've heard you, people of change.org. The audacity, <laughs> though. The audacity. Oh, yeah. Well, the mouse is never, you know. Do you think, you know, everybody, we did a rewatch of Halloween. Do you think they actually filed for the copyright of Halloween? Come on. No, I know. Of for, course no, not. I know. I know for a fact. Uh, Carpenter was amazed that he was able to name that franchise, that name, that there wasn't already a movie with that name in the title. Exactly. Yeah. All right, last thing. Uh, there's a 20-minute documentary about their research field trips to Mexico. Yes. It's really touching. It's wonderful. It's on YouTube. Go watch it. They hung out with families, not just did the tourist thing. They did both, but they hung out with a shoemaking family. They, they, they gushed about how so many people in the cities where they, they visited are artisans and craftsmen, and it was just really, really a nice thing. So go on YouTube. If you're a Pixar animator... Based on what we've talked about, mm-hmm. what percentage of time do you think is spent in the office versus on luxurious vacations, not on your dime? I wish I could draw. <laughs> I wish That's, I could draw. I say that jokingly. I know these people work incredibly hard, but man, do they take some lavish yeah. vacations. All that being said, though, they all they also sit with like a clip right. of 30 for seconds. Days. For Not days, <laughs> right. Mike. For like, they'll sit with that clip yeah. for like six months. Yeah, they're, they're unbelievably talented there. Yeah. Very true. Uh, let's talk about some specs for Coco. Written, we said 
this already. Lee Unkrich and Jason Katz, Matthew Aldrich and Adrian Molina all get original story by credits. Molina and Aldrich each get screenplay by credits, directed by Unkrich and Molina, who gets a co-director and co-directed by credits. Film debuted October 20th, 2017 at Morelia International Film Festival, which takes place in Mexico and went wide in the U.S. a month later on November 22nd. It's the 19th film from Pixar and it runs for 105 minutes on a PG rating. Walt Disney Pictures and Pixar Animation Studios are the production companies with Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures to the distributor. Michael Giacchino! I think he does the music. Giacchino, though. Whatever. He's back. <laughs> <laughs> I've said it Giacchino for the last, like, five episodes. He needs to call me and tell me. I'm sorry. Uh, Matt Atbury, the camera. Daniel Feinberg, the lighting for which she, we told you about a few Pixar episodes ago would result in her winning an Annie Award for her efforts here doing the lighting. Steve Bloom does the editing. A $175 million budget went into this, which once again proved a wise investment as the film went on to gross $807 million at the worldwide box office. Only two 9.7 of that coming domestically breaks down to roughly 74% or almost three-fourths of the worldwide box office coming via international territories, which is the largest such difference of any Pixar film, probably unsurprisingly. Even more amazing when you consider that the average breakdown between domestic and international box offices for a Pixar film is usually about 58.5% coming internationally, so this was about 15% higher with the international markets than your average Pixar film. Again, not surprising. Not surprising, but a great sign for the industry. Sure. And you know that the global box office for a, a terrific film, yeah. an Oscar-nominated film that got nominated in, in many other categories, as, as you're going to talk about, made that kind of money and was recognized more so by an international audience yeah, than our own, our own audience. Absolutely. A very good sign for the industry at large. And it's not just be. Transformers 5, Extinction of the Robot, <laughs> or whatever the hell, Extinction of Pot. Like, it's not just Man. the Michael Bay movies that are that doing movie. well overseas. Extinction of the Robot would be the end of Pixar, I think. That would be, yeah, that would be the end of the Pixar company. Uh, the international box office helps the film break down to roughly $4.61 gross for every $1 of production, which means, again, we have a wildly profitable film. It won't shock you then to hear that the critics adored this film as well. 8.4 IMDb rating, tying the film with Wally for the highest rated Pixar made film on the site, though with considerably less than Wally's 900,000 plus reviews, as Coco carries the score on 275,000 plus reviews. Number 72 on the IMDb Top 250 as well. 97% certified fresh score on 321 critic scores, nine of whom proved they received no love from their families as a child. As well as a highly respectable 94% audience score on the site. Again, though, on a relatively low 26,000 scores. Coco also carries an 81 Metascore on Metacritic. Amazingly only good for the 10th highest rated Pixar film on the site. But don't weep too much for Coco, because for the first time since Toy Story 3, we are dealing with a multi-time Oscar winner, making Coco the fourth ever and most recent Pixar film to accomplish the feat at the Academy Awards as it won the Oscar for both animated feature and original song, something your favorite Mike won here still hasn't gotten over, as it defeated This Is Me from Zac Efron slash Wolverine crossover Carney film The Greatest Showman. Just a bit of Oscars record keeping before we move on, because lest we forget, that's kind of what we do here most often. Coco would be the seventh straight and ninth of past ten nominated Pixar films for the Academy Award that would win the animated feature category. Quite the run. The streak that would come to an end with this past year's Oscars at the hands of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, having dethroned Pixar's Incredibles 2. End of an era. Plot premise. Yes. Aspiring musician Miguel confronted with his family's ancestral ban on music 
enters the land of the dead to find his great-great-grandfather, a legendary singer. Mike, in a million years, would you have thought <laughs> that would have been a premise for a Disney animated, Pixar animated film? No. Right? <laughs> no, He's got to go to the land of the dead, which sounds better in a more musical language. Yes. 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 I'm also impressed by how efficient that recap is, because they fit a lot into to that little synopsis there. That's a strong-ass yeah. premise, I agree. When was the first time you watched this? So I saw it in 2017. I watched it during Oscar season, Mike, and it was good. I loved it, and it, and it really moved me emotionally. I did not go as crazy for the song at that moment. but I, Because I, this is me as a fucking banger and should have won? Yeah, I agree. But here's the thing. <laughs> I'm going to talk about it later, and it, it impressed me down the line after study. I'm not, I don't mean to say that you shouldn't love This Is Me for being a banger. And I love that you love This Is Me for being a banger. It's a great Oscar song. I love that you love that. I love it. It's an anthem. I love no, it this too. No, is, this is a very heartwarming but this, you know, sweet song. Song to song, stack them up. We did a whole Best Original yeah. Song half episode. I was waiting to pepper this in. I'm going to throw it on the Pixar playlist. Yeah. And I mean, I've just figured out how on SoundCloud <laughs> to get that playlist back up to the top so you don't have to go you know, scrolling for 10 minutes before you find it. So you're going to be able to click on this episode if you haven't listened to it before. That's our Best Original Song 2017-18 Oscars where Mike and I you know, debate this much better than we are now. I am so tired of this movie. <laughs> Because it is on Netflix, I have seen it a billion times, having done babysitting duty for my niece and nephew. So how do the niece and nephew like it? They love it. The bright colors, the vivid imagery, of course. It's it's made for small children, which is really genius. They're not Pixar. afraid of the skeletons. Not at all. And there's, I mean, Pixar gets to celebrate a, a unique culture, a very unique culture, and they get to present it in forms that kids of all cultures can lap up because it's so attractive to them visually. Because I've heard some people complain... You know, these the skeletons are too about much. About the skeletons being a little scary. And the character in the film, Miguel, reacts to those skeletons like he's scared crapless right there. So, I mean, I'm wondering about American kids who haven't gone to parades their entire yeah. lives seeing skeletons. Maybe Halloween, they see some skeletons. Don't you think once they're in presented in a cartoonish enough fashion? I guess yes, I do. Production I do, but I'm, I'm very curious because I don't know any little kids. I don't have any nephew, nieces or nephews. They're not bothered at all. This is They're, they're cool with I wasn't there the first time they took it in. Yeah. If it was an issue for them, I didn't get the report. So, <laughs> so maybe Pixar's Day of the Dead would have worked with the new generation. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think, yeah, I certainly don't think that would have been the issue. I don't think calling the film the Day of the Dead, though I think they would have just called it Dia de los Muertos to, like, really get the whole vibe going that this is a Latin property. Yeah. I think that would have been smart as well. But, no, I, I don't recall them ever being spooked out by anything because look the skeletons all have smiles on their faces they're all presented as cartoon characters they're not really ever presented as intimidating or threatening again i think this goes more to production values and i'm sure there was right there. a concerted effort to do that which is intelligent and perfect segue because we can start reviewing production values and one of those animation innovations mike was making skeletons not scary their eye sockets they had to make them move. They had to fuse bones together so that they can move more similar to how a human being moves and how cartoon characters move. They did have this snafu with the clothes. The clothes were essentially, with their collisions programs, the work in the way they would work, giving every character wedgies constantly. <laughs> and to get rid of those wedgies, they had to essentially 
rewrite the whole collisions program. They had to give them like this phantom mass. Well, there you go. There was and some new technology. So on they, board. they had to invent all this new technology to because if you just put clothes on skeletons not going to work. So they they had to caricature the skeletons. They had to make their bone structures actually move and their mouths move. They had to make skeletons smile, Mike. And they look absurd. If you put flesh on these skeletons, you're not getting regular human-looking people. No, you're getting, like, gummy bears. Right. So <laughs> we understand that as adults, obviously. But I think, again, that only adds to the cartoonish ism the cartoonian yes so the, <laughs> thank so the, you <laughs> that works the cartoonian lighting the backdrops mike was another huge animation innovation the land of the dead required seven million lights this Good is all God. at a birth movies death article by Kirst, uh, Kristen o'neill excuse me Seven million lights. So the computer can't recognize seven million lights. At many, at most, it can do like fifteen. They said. Holy shit! So how do how did they do that? They clustered all the lights together and basically figured out how to make clusters of lights count as, as fifteen parts. So there's a, huh. all this math involved that broke my brain reading about it, and that birth movie's death didn't even try, but I clicked on another couple things. It's it, just insane to me. And the bit, what they called it was like a street light program to get all these clusters of however many millions of lights that is, or th- hundreds of thousands of lights that is, to get a, a factor of 15 in there, to get 7 million in one shot. Nerds! <laughs> no, I mean, Pixar, again, we talk about things that have popped up over and over and over again in the non-spoiler section when talking about this company. It's the way they throw themselves into, honestly, this is, this, this one reason and this one reason only is the reason I couldn't be the head of this company. I, I can't imagine caring enough about this to actually dive into it to figure out how to solve it. It's like, we can't have two million lights on screen. All right, how many can we have? 15? Let's do it with 15. Let's do it with 15. <laughs> yes, we need a CEO that cares about atmospherics <laughs> as much as the Pixar people do there. You're and a very that was, nice person. Uh, no, that, that was something big that they figured out with this movie as well. Fog. They, they totally changed all the computer programs on Fog, and they nailed it because they needed Fog throughout the land of the dead, Mike. And uh, this was much more realistic Fog. Go figure. You caricatured the skeletons, but you made real Fog inside your computer. I asked this question, uh, submitting that every Pixar film looks unique in its own way, but is this the most unique-looking setting in a Pixar film? Oh, yeah, I I think so. Don't you think so? Just the colors alone and the way it's lit? I could not believe, I could not take my eye off of this movie to write my notes. It was either I was just yeah. going to test my typing skills and see <laughs> if I can understand where I am. And that's somehow difficult, sometimes difficult yeah. on a laptop. But I had to glance down and keep my eyes on the on the movie. I, I just totally, totally agree. I, it just looked stunning. Drop my jaw. Uh, the last little nugget here on the cinematography, Mike, with these animation innovations is that they get go figure they ran with the good dinosaur remember the good dinosaur yeah. basically put the mapping system in yeah and they went with like grand theft autos Make an open world map of the open world of los angeles they did that inside of this movie they created the whole land of the dead in a giant map they did that up front 
and then they moved and moved the camera around the whole thing and played with it. I also read there was a concerted effort to make the Land of the Dead still feel like a human world. It's where they had the grounded in realism. They couldn't just let anything happen. They made the concerted effort to actually have there be rules. Yes. Even though you're getting there by a magical leaf bridge that appears out of nowhere. Well, what was fun <laughs> is that the skeletons can't get hurt. So you can't get hurt if you're dead, right? Right. So if they could just fall and break up into a bag of bones right. like that and they'll, they'll come back together. So it doesn't have to be what they called up to code. Like it could just fall off a cliff <laughs> and it's not good for Miguel. Right. Yeah. No, not the one living person. Yeah. So yeah, no, you're exactly right. They, they based the land of the dead on some cities in Mexico. And one no note that stood out to me was that in one particular city, they don't paint any of the houses the same color as any of the neighbors. So every house is passed to be painted a different color that's just whatever mexican tradition so that's why it looks like such a wonderful collage of color when you look at the city from uh cityscape is the street at all allowed to have repeating colors like if i live eight houses down from I you can you i can. have your same color For, i don't know about the street rules actually <laughs> i just heard them mention the how the neighbors can't have the same color that but, but that's how they did it with this land of the dead i would purposefully make my color the same color as a neighbor <laughs> just to be a dick. Half, you would be half the color <laughs> one on one and side half the and half the color on the other side just to be a jerk. Uh, it's funny. All right, so we're going to talk about the song and how it's used. Again, I, I gushed over it in that half episode, Mike, but the music is really a highlight for me. Yeah, of course it is. All right, Mike, best original song of 2017 and 2016 combined with 2018 this is me is not nominated it got yeah. snubbed you have remember me you have city of stars you have sam smith's the writings on the wall from the bond movie who are you picking are you giving remember me credit at this point is it or it, yeah it, yeah yeah i I'd go remember me over those other two city of stars was really good really good but i it's also not like used the i same also way. like how you're purposely not including shallow because shallow was <laughs> seminal moment. I would say this is a seminal moment in how a best original song was used Plays in the film. In the plot. I agree. It, it has major moments in mm -hmm. Act One, Two, and Three. It's also used for comedy. It's also used as a, as sides throughout Act Two, making jokes about how everybody's going to sing the song at a little battle of the bands, right? And and Mike in the in Act One, it's essential to talk about Ernesto with that song, and it's essential to talk about Miguel's love for music with that song. We'll get into how it's used in the next two acts, but this song has an arc and it has additional characterization. It's used like a character in a movie. Doing these side-by-side rewatch series simultaneously, yeah. it is eerie to see some similarities between Quentin freaking Tarantino and the way he uses music in his movies True. and Pixar and the way they use music in their movies. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it doesn't sing the plot at you at all, but it's used as a device to move the story along in various ways. Yeah, it's beautiful. Incredible. And uh, I guess you parodied the wrong song at the beginning of all these episodes. <laughs> so now you should feel... That's on me. No. I'll look better next time. No, you're good. <laughs> we, we could not sing like Carlos Garcia Bernal. So. Remember no, me. And turned everyone off. Yeah, everybody clicks us off. <laughs> Performances, character animations. I love this family. I love the expression on all their faces. Abuelita is my favorite. Had I known 
I would fall in love with so many Pixar characters, and that yeah. would be like where my heartache and happiness comes from. I would have done a Who Would Mike One Lose His Life For? And it would be Abuelita in this one. Shh. I love her. I love her. <laughs> I, I love that you love her, because I love her too. I love the mean grandmother. Of course, it's a curse. Music is a curse. I agreed with the grandmother there. Mike, when she <laughs> took her shoe off for the first time, threatened a mariachi singer, threw her shoe later on on the walk back, gave Miguel a life lesson and ended the life lesson with, now go get my shoe. I was done. I was in. Matriarch that employs all of the family members and the court, you know, the, the media family and like a bunch of the cousins. Yeah. So she's running a major business. All right. We're, she, she's got an arc to it and we're going to, I like how she's changed at the end of it, but I love that yeah. I don't love how she treated the dog. I don't like how anyone treats the dogs. I don't in this like movie. how anybody treats the dogs in this movie. So that bothered me throughout. I want that dog taken home. Now that said, wanky, right? And fed too much. That's <laughs> it, what I, I treat. Dogs. It is a street dog, right? It's nobody's. So they're saying, don't give it a name. It'll only follow you around if you get a connection. It's the street dog. Somebody rescue the street dog. Well, please. I wonder. I wonder. You know, we don't have that experience. I wonder if that's a more rampant problem. With random street dogs trying to make places right. their own down there. I don't know. I'll, I'll adopt a raccoon and test my principles, <laughs> I suppose. Or a coyote. Because <laughs> that's what I have to do. It's the only... You have to now. You now I have, have to. to. Otherwise, I'm a hypocrite. Right. But uh, So what do we think about the protagonist? Non-spoiler review. Real quick. We're going to have some things to I say about him. I have issues with him. You have issues yeah. with him. I kind of... He wins me over a little bit, but I do have a few issues with him as well. He's a very willful character... And he's dealing with a, a, a the land of the dead. I want the movie just about Abolita Shoe Company. <laughs> that's what I. That's the movie I want. I like Miguel had his adventure. That's great. I want Coco too. Abolita makes her millions. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. Otherwise, there's a big coincidence in Act Two. But I guess a coincidence in the land of the dead. If you're believing in the land yeah, of the dead, yeah, I it's was destiny. It's whatever i agree i was able to get past it and again it's a credit to pixar because they do create these fantastical worlds and it's easy to explain away the objection like you talk about all the time when you joke about it or you show a one-off scene to it so i'm more forgiving with that type of stuff in this type of movie so two more quick things here before we talk spoilers mike this was supposed to be a break into song musical they wrote (sighs) i read that coco as and they had a big intro to the land of the dead song this is the land of the dead. Blah, blah, blah. They had that programmed in, and then they cut it in favor of, I think, the drama of it all. They left the musical aspect of it strictly to the performance piece. So we talked about how they seem to be more obviously going for the sentimentality of the viewer in this, yeah. especially in Act 3. My heartbreaks are going to outweigh the happiness. That was the second thing I wanted to say before we broke. So maybe with that in mind, knowing you were an- ending and landing in the spot at the end, yeah. I could see that being a, a very conscious decision. Let's not over-cartoonize a land where we're already dealing with so many, like a, a guy that can escape police custody by yeah. separating his torso from his legs, going under and over the cop, and then reconnecting at the end. That's that's strange enough if you had you know a skeleton Jasmine and Aladdin singing a whole new world <laughs> as they right. went into right. You know, be does that work? Yeah, that's uh, true. so I can see. I, yeah, I'm okay with that decision. Fascinating. All right, well we got to get into spoilers. That's about time, huh? Only took us 87 minutes. <laughs> oh, God, spoilers ahead. Miguel! <gasps> uh. A 
Abuelita! What are you doing here? Um, uh, you leave my grandson alone. Doña, please. I was just getting a shine. I know your tricks, Mariachi. What did he say to you? He was just showing me his guitar. <gasps> Shame on you. Uh, my grandson is a sweet little angelito querido cielito. He wants no part of your music, Mariachi. You keep away from him. <laughs> this is a spoiler. Morning. This is the spoiler section for Pixar's Coco as part of the Pixar series rewatch brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. If you've not seen the movie yet, this is a good place for you to hit pause, go watch the movie. We'll be here waiting for you when you come back to hit play. If you've seen the movie already, if you're just here interested in hearing about uh, our thoughts on these spoilers, or if you've been hyped up so much in the non-spoiler section that you cannot possibly go another minute without hearing about all the twists and turns that Coco has waiting, this is where you want to be. All spoilers, we're talking everything that happens in the movie Coco as part of the Pixar rewatch series brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Mike, we start every spoiler section by talking about one of the 22 rules of Pixar screenwriting success. What do we have for Coco? Rule number 15, and again, it is a rule that fits this movie perfectly. It's amazing how that's happened, especially since we're not going chronologically with these We're not films. going chronologically. I didn't set these movies up to this. We we totally threw an audible on yeah. it this week. We were going to do Cars. This was going to be Cars. We yeah. had said we were going to do Cars multiple times. We, we, we keep procrastinating. These rules are like the magic eight ball. You just shake it and it just happens to give you exactly what you it's need. It's crazy. Like Cars 1 right now. If this was the rule for Cars 1, I would say it doesn't fit it perfectly, really, at all. At Although, all. it'll be interesting to see if anything fits the Cars series right. with how they're reviewed. But it fits Coco <laughs> right. perfectly. And whatever. It's crazy. So rule number 15 starts with a question. If you were your character in this situation, how would you feel? Wow. <laughs> and the rule states, honesty lends credibility to unbelievable situations. Come Mike, on. they went to the land Give of the me dead. A fucking break. <laughs> this is exactly what the movie's about. That's what the movie's about. <laughs> so we're dealing with a protagonist that has to make real life impactful choices that directly affect should what's go going to, on in the real world. Should we go to the casino or at least down the street and buy <laughs> lotto tickets or something? Because this keeps happening. Mike, let me tell you, I've played that game. <laughs> And I'm here with you in Did this basement. Feather... <laughs> Go to the casino! <laughs> oh, darn it. No, this is amazing. They do a really good job with this. Little moments, a lot of little reactions. The, one of the most obvious reactions is how Miguel takes in those skeletons for the first time and realizes that he cannot react with anybody in the real world at that cemetery, including his parents who are looking for him, but he can only react with the land of the dead. I would also say, and this is something I know you're going to highlight for a different part later, but it does spring to mind right now, how's an 11-year-old going to react in the situation where he's given basically a get-out-of-jail-free card, allowed to go back to the land of the living with no consequences, nobody around him. Is he going to repeat the exact same action to see if he can get away with it in stealing Ernesto's guitar? Of course he is. And he does. So <laughs> I, I think that fits beautifully here, but I also know you have some issues with how, it's, how it plays on. So I have a few issues because that sense of wonder, the setting gets more and more beautiful. Yes. The setting, it gets crazier and crazier. The evil people get more and more evil, and especially when they reveal... The heel who, turn. The heel turn mm -hmm. by Ernesto... You know, this kid stops, like he starts taking it in too much of a stride. And it really bothers me. They they give him like an out where he kind of is put off center. Where he like falls in the pool before Ernesto does what he does. And yeah, he's upset, but he's still very willful. Uh, to me, like he becomes, he handles it way too well. 
So you think he's too good of a smooth talker for an 11-year-old? This kid just had stage fright. Yep. On stage, and he, all right, he overcame it. And net, all of a sudden, he, he is shushing the party, and he is just singing to them all. And I know, I understand he falls in the pool. He so what's it interesting about this, and it's kind of a meta conversation, is that it goes back again to what our expectations are of 11 and 12-year-old children, which yes. is a whole conversation we had before we started this, speaking about some lowlights that we struggle with. This kid's going to have the audacity to do all these things, I don't know if he necessarily earned that level of audacity. Like right. You're going to talk about that. him in worse scenes being a bit of a stalker in a way. And he is. Yeah, a bit. A bit. <laughs> All right. Well, let's do some fun things first, yeah. though. So, uh, you know, we're a little up and down on how Pixar followed their own rule with Coco. Isn't it, it's also interesting <laughs> that I think the biggest fumble is with the character that's on screen the most. The protagonist. Which I guess in and of... That's an obvious thing that happens in a lot of movies, and especially movies that don't grade well. This movie still grades well, I would say, but there's maybe the most faults we found with a protagonist in a Pixar movie is Miguel. Now, I understand that his driving force is to become a musician, and they sell that in like the background that he has a shrine to the town musician who became right. a worldwide megastar. Mm-hmm. All right, he has a shrine to that person. And, of course, his family is irrationally against him playing music. Yes. So he's willful enough in that moment to go off in secret and play music every day and memorize all the stuff. So to talk about that obsession and the obsession of an artist, like this is the only kind of kid who can become successful, right? You have to be a lunatic about music the way Elton John was, the way, you know, yeah, Freddie no, Mercury I, I would was. Agree. I would agree with the case you're making, yeah. So yeah. I get that much. And then the kid never performed before. And fine, the kid performs once, and he loves it so much. This that is now he clearly a man that has never been obsessed with pro wrestling and never wrestled a match in his life. All right, so you've never <laughs> wrestled a match in your life. Not in front of a crowd, anyway. <laughs> the, after you do one in front of a cloud, you, you have to do the second one, is what you're saying. If it's well, Once you cross that line, because like, I know with sports, you have to build up a, a lot of experience. You can't just go in one big game. and You're still going to be nervous for your second big game. I don't mean to defend him, but... You hear about stand-up comics a lot of times, right? How they first got started. They said that first time they did it was like a drug. They were like, I need to go back and do it again. Perfect example, yeah. And then, but they, all right, they need to go back and do it again. But then they bomb. And then they bomb. They usually bomb the second time and the first time they don't. I mean, all right, the kid fell in the pool. I'm just surprised that a little kid is going to just halt the party. Like, he has the audacity to do all it, it goes back to, to your biggest problem is that, the audacity of it, the the, yeah, the cojones bit. he has to actually go out yeah, and say, bit. stop everything. he just seen the other guy disappear, Mike. He he just watched his body turn into a skeleton. He's He was so freaked out. Did Maybe you say we're going to do highlights now and happiness and not lowlights? I can get it. I mean, he's a stalker. He's crazed at this point is my whole issue with that scene. So, yes, he's not going to act irrationally because, in my eyes, he's not a rational human being anyway. He's so little- I was okay with it. He's 11, he's trying to save his eternal so soul. So what is what is the baseline of expectation from an 11-year-old? Do you believe an 11-year-old can act, knows what a stalker is and knows what like can be held to the adult standard of... Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. I think if an 11-year-old finds out that his hero needs to bless him in order for him to go back without giving up his life's dream, that only his hero will be able to bless him to go back and live the rest of his life 
going after his passion. That that kid, that's all he sees. Now, it's kind of selfish, right? He did, the whole thing that selfish, he's dealing, so are children. Yeah. He's dealing with the fact that he has to balance his own self-interest with the interests of his family, and he does that. And he does change their minds with the music, but it's only through him getting... He has to realize, Mike, that the song well, from Hector was meant for Coco, so he has to sing a song to Coco, his great-grandmother, to sell his family on the whole idea of music being something worthwhile in general. So I think you just proved why him having the audacity is okay, because right. he realizes this is a once-in-a-life, or death time, once-in-a-whatever-time situation where he needs to get the attention of this hero who is so beyond his reach right now. He's got to do something out of his comfort zone. to get. I think that the part makes it okay. The ends justify the stalker means. No, but... <laughs> you just proved this. <laughs> I, yeah, I get what you're saying. I don't disagree. According I don't, to an 11-year-old I don't think, 11, yeah, I don't yeah. think an 11-year-old can be a stalker. I think that's me oversimplifying it. I just, my point was, if you look at this, if you're a passerby, if you're a party goer, and you have no idea Miguel's backstory, it's creepy. We have a connection that only you and I can understand. My, you're my family. He was 42 years old. <laughs> right. Uh, yes, I agree. It'd be a little nuts. All right, so let's go to some heartbreaks and happiness real quick. At least we got the biggest worst scene out of the way. Or, yeah, that's our right. biggest issue. So, very, very sad to watch Gariel Garcia Bernal not have his photo up. And therefore, he not he can't pass over that character of Hector. We don't know who he is yet. Can't pass over, it, and he does all the little goofy things to try and lie his way through. That's very sad to me. Hector is an interesting character because we're given the blueprint that he's supposed to be the shyster that's going to ultimately disappoint. Trickster, yeah, hero, he's, mentor, he's going whatever. to disappoint in some way. Yeah. The protagonist. That's what these characters do all the time. No, they're, he's they, the victim, right? He's, play, he's he's a good guy through and through, which is a little surprising for me. Uh, now, is it sad that he's being forgotten? No, duh. <laughs> like, of course it is. It's horrible. horrible. And it only is exacerbated by the fact that he remains a good guy throughout the entire story. He doesn't really have a whole lot of black marks. This is just a victim of life circumstances. And well, yes, but he also lies a lot and he does the charming thing of, you know... Apologize. I'm sorry. I lied about that. He, and, you know, that's very charming by a guy, Al Garcia Bernal. Yes. He's a straight up liar, the whole movie. But was he as a human? Like, he's not supposed to be dead, even, you know? So maybe he had to adapt, and that's how he learned to survive. I don't know. He's trying to, any by any means necessary, yeah, to get back to, yeah. Get there so that he doesn't get forgotten. Like we see in a terribly emotional performance by Edward James almost disappearing as the that old guy me. giving away the Shoot guitar. Own, yeah. My goodness. That's for, in a kid's movie, the final death happens. I would like anyone to try and convince me that the Russo brothers didn't see this movie and get the snap idea from Coco. Because <laughs> Chicharron leaves the exact same way everyone in Thanos' snap does. Oh, the, how they covered it. Because the snap was written in the comics. Right, right, right. How but they the, the flaking it. away, the dusting away type yeah. uh, effect. Could be, could be. Mike, on rewatch, knowing the twist and knowing... That Miguel and Hector are related directly by, if anything, passion, not just blood. Right. When they perform together, Poco that, Loco, that was emotional to me. I was surprised. Oh, that's on rewatch. Okay, so this that is worked one, of, on me. one of the first times you're bringing up a heartbreak scene. That's only, I mean, you could only feel it if you know how the movie ends. Right. So this is like on a second or third watch, you kind of felt this. That's kind of cool. And it's sad when Mama Imelda, the great grandmother, I'm sorry, the great great grandmother. Yes. Because Coco's the great Miguel's great grandmother, yeah. 
Miguel's great-great-grandmother, when she is singing to Miguel on the stairways, and like, no, I could sing, but I choose not yeah. to because of how it screws with us. Wow. He- yeah. And Hell of a he- scene. Hector not knowing the ending, I'm Hector starting to disappear, realizing his daughter's starting to forget him. That got me. And that's the whole, whole thing Hector wants to do. He's like, I just have to get yep. home to Coco. Hector's oh story is just heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. This is a Betrayed murder. by his best friend. And maybe, not to get into too much of the psychology of the characters, but maybe everything he's lived through is why he needs to feels the need to just fake it till you make it and try and survive in this death world. Yeah. Because he's had a terrible storyline. So... That flashback with Hector singing to Little Coco, mm-hmm. Jesus God. I was so freaking emotional watching that. I, I did not cry, but I just I did, had to do everything not to cry. That's how I was at the end, when, when Miguel's singing to Coco and trying to get oh. desperately trying to get her to remember Hector. That my, was tough. My grandma just had a health scare. Yeah. We're all ripped up about it. It's more than a scare. It's a situation. God, that ruined me. Yep. I did. I did let uh, shed a tear yeah, for that. Absolutely. How do you not? How, how do you not feel that? And sings with him oh, after God. being catatonic like that. Good God. I wonder too if that scene played into this song winning best original song over "This Is Me." I think it. <laughs> I think so. I think the way that song was used in the plot had everything to do because that song, when you when it's up tempo, it's a, it's an anthem, and when you slow it down, the lyrics mean something yeah. different, like we talked about in that original song episode. It's incredibly it, clever. It, it very, it, it's lyrics that are versatile. Yep. So that's a long list of heartbreaks. For certainly, this, certainly for this movie. And we said that in the non-spoiler section. We, it would seem there was a concerted effort to make this very manipulative. Uh, yeah. Very emotionally manipulative. But, and it worked. Yeah. Uh, so, a lot of the stuff they tried landed. I only have three really heartwarming moments, Mike. I have a very happy epilogue. The dogs getting fed, being a part of the family. This meant a lot to me. If those dogs were not part of this family, I was going to shit. One of my worst scenes is how Miguel treats Dante. No, I agree. The family fight backstage when they all help each other. That, that worked for me, and it's so goofy, and yet it worked. Like, oh, the whole extended family... Just doing all this goofy Scooby-Doo hijinks to allow Imelda to get up there instead of Ernesto, mm-hmm. the bad guy, the heel turner. And I, and I loved it. And the, the, her little aside, Imelda said, I can't believe you made me lose the love of my life. And then Gael goes, you say you love It's like, did you just call me the love of your life? <laughs> I don't know. I'm very mad right now. <laughs> I love that so much. Finally... The revelation that Hector is the real grandpa for Miguel is incredible. Yeah, you hit on the major ones for me, and especially uh, the the love story between oh. Mama Imelda and Hector. There is, it's, how do you not just put a oh. smile on your face with that? And whole the fact thing? that they get together at the end, oh, yeah. it's wonderful. And we've all had that relationship, right? Like, I hate you right now. But here's the thing: Want to go get food? Yeah, but why <laughs> does Coco go in when you're in the land of the dead? Your skeleton. Like, how, why aren't there more old people? Why aren't more of them so much older? Again, why do we focus on this stupid overanalyzation of these happy last scenes that are clearly gratuitous? If Coco was a toddler, (laughs) how much harder would you have cried? I would because I have no relation to that character. I would have. Because you had the flashback. It was a tough call. You love the old grandma. (laughs) Why is she an old grandma still? Why can't for Hector she could be a How is again. it possible that Steve Rogers Yeah, we're not doing this? <laughs> 
fine. I refuse to analyze that scene. Right. It's a happy scene. All right, so a bunch of best scenes. We'll kind of rip them off quick because we love this movie, but we know we're going late. Until he was crushed by a giant bell. Killed me. I laughed out loud hard when I saw that. When Ernesto gets crushed by the bell, I'm dying. And it was because the guy was swooning to his song. The, the dramatic irony of that is genius. Absolutely genius. I also wanted to highlight along those lines when we first see uh, Miguel playing the guitar up in his little hideaway there. Yeah. Pixar, it seems they put a very direct effort into extremities and limbs and finger playing so yeah. it looks like he's actually strumming the guitar and picking at the chords they looked phenomenal it. it did it looked great uh miguel goes uh at his crisis moment in act one when he's running away from his family great great grandfather what am i supposed to do and then he boom snaps his eyes to the caption of the monument yep. seize your moment mm-hmm. <laughs> with the guitar <laughs> it tells him exactly what to do i thought that was funny all right, so Land of the Dead stuff. The clerk literally drops a jaw to the ground. I'm like, a lot of that goofy skeleton stuff had me Yeah, there was another one where Hector's eyes go into his jaw and he has to, like, shove them back up into his eye sockets. Perfect. Yeah. All that stuff is perfect. I could watch that all day. Now, this is just great screenwriting. This is what they teach you to do. So, test phase, early act two. Yeah. The hero's getting tested. You're supposed to get the obvious solution out of the way. The path of least resistance out of the way. Grandma Amelda, Mama Amelda says, go home. Here's my blessing. Just don't play music anymore. The kid's like, fine, I guess I got to take it. Immediately grabs a guitar <laughs> to steal it again because he's an 11-year-old kid. He's not going to do that. The path of least resistance, the easiest way home. He can't go back yet. Now you just can't leave. Very Doesn't clever. Work. Very, very clever writing. And it's exactly like anyone that has ever dealt with little kids or adolescent kids is going to, yes, of course, that's how they're going to act. Can I get away with this? Oh, you caught me. But can I get away with this? <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's what happens. Brilliant. So we kind of went through all the stuff with the protagonist. I still think having that a protagonist as willful as he is is a really strong move, which kind of enables this plot to happen. Did they explain it all the way enough for me? Maybe not. Even to you, where you're questioning the kid's yeah. mode, what he's doing. No, uh, but again, we this is probably the most issue we had with a protagonist because there was probably the least explaining away of those shortcomings. I also imagine it has got to be incredibly tough. You know, they did it so efficiently with Monsters, Inc. They do it so efficiently with all these other... Wally's World. Yeah. They're usually so good at explaining the rules of the world in a succinct mesh- exposition that's tucked away early in Act 1. Yeah. Because you have this World of the Dead that's so grounded in realism... It's like, okay, where's that line? Where do things that can and can't happen stop? There's no definitive exp- explanation for that ever. Yeah. So it's there's, it's there's going to be naturally occurring difficulties. With but that. it comes down to it. We have an 11-year-old willing to give up his life and his future for the chance to play music. Right. And you have to do that in a very, very quickly. Yeah. And to give up his family and to leave everybody he loves to play music. Because he's sick of his grandma, who's a loving, <laughs> wonderful woman, who's a great businesswoman, but she has that one rule in her house that the, that young boy doesn't agree with. So uh-huh. it's not just a, like a fit. It is a, This kid is being told, you're going to die, yeah. and he's watching his body transform into a skeleton. It's incredible to it's make heavy. a character that willful and to make us believe it enough where we only have some issues, but not we're a little bit on the cocoa side at the end of the day. 
Yes, I think that's fair to say. Uh, I, I I don't mean to, to keep going on here, but I also just want to say I appreciated Dante's arc. I'm glad he got a happy ending there. I needed it. I'm glad Desperately. he didn't end up saving Miguel during that fall because Miguel treated him like shit. And I also appreciated the big performance at the end on stage between Amelda trying to evade the security, a la Frank Drebin and Naked Gun 33 and a third on the Oscars stage. Yes. Loved all that. Now... It bothered me slightly that they that the his thugs wouldn't just grab her, take the microphone away, and that would be that. They got embarrassed, that starstruck. Would, that would bother me if I wasn't thinking convinced at the time that they got this from Naked Gun thirty three and a third. That's true. <laughs> they also showed how susceptible to being starstruck these elite force security guys oh, yeah. were because when they took when he took the selfies, like can I take a selfie with the luchador? Yeah. That guard literally took his head off, gave it to the luchador <laughs> to take a selfie with it. So they were showing how much that these people just worship the the whole performance angle of it. So that, then it made sense. But I, in the in the moment, I didn't love it. But I did enjoy the finale. Now a couple more worth scenes before we finish. Never name a street dog; they'll follow you forever. WTF. I made me very, 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 very yeah, angry. Both of us have giant issues with the way Dante was treated throughout so the, this movie. Yeah, the dog is dead or it's not dead it becomes a spirit guide mid-movie they don't answer that at all it's really makes no sense how he's treated i'm sure there's something obvious that both of us are overlooking but dante should not be able to be seen in the real world and the world of the dead with no issue unless he just was a real dog who happened to become a spirit guide while in the world of the dead but yeah. there's never ex- explanation. I didn't get the mythology there because it, then it goes back to earth obviously right. so we have the dog mike Saving Miguel after he gets his wings. We think he's an angel. We think he's dead. Dogs die faster than humans. All right, fine. It didn't happen. <laughs> he saves Miguel, and then he can't save Miguel. Yeah, the whole point good. of the whole thing with the dog no. is he should save Miguel. No, good. Screw you, Miguel. You were mean to Dante. No, but here's the problem. You just have the deus ex machina with the giant panther. Why do you need giant panther? <laughs> Why do you need Giant Panther? It gets me mad that there's a Giant Panther who's really super tough because it's just Deus Ex Machina comes in, swoops in. Like, that family could have stood up to any security force. That family could have been just as menacing with a couple of dogs or one dog. Why do you need the Giant Panther? I would have appreciated an explanation as to why some spirit animals are gigantic and others aren't. It's a missed opportunity to me. Let the dog save Miguel in that moment, even if he barely does it. I would have appreciated the dog saving Miguel and then choosing to drop him based on how Dante was treated by Miguel. <laughs> you, you, you don't hurt dogs! That's true. Can you tell that we we side, we side with a street dog over an 11-year-old boy who's a little misguided throughout this episode? You can tell we have spoiled dogs at home. I guess yeah, my dog day. is so fat. <laughs> so is mine. Are we wrapping up here? We're wrapping up. That's all I got. All right. Well, we obviously want to know your thoughts about everything. Did you see Coco when it first came out? Did you see it in theaters? Did you? See, I would love to also hear from someone that saw this in like a packed house because I didn't see this obviously in a theater. I would just love to know the condition of the room and what the sentiment was in the room. Were people excited with their outbursts? So if you had seen this in the theater, uh, definitely let us know. Mike, what are some fine words of wisdom to end this episode on? So this is in the review by Award Circuits Clayton Davis, friend of the show, yeah. came on after the Oscars. Uh, and he said this. He is half Latino, half African-American. Clayton himself. By the middle 
of their new film, Coco, from co-directors Leon Kirsch and Adrian Molina, tears began to fall, and not because of the standard cry-fest sessions they insert into all their films. At least, it wasn't the only reason. <laughs> it was because the realization that Latin culture was being portrayed by the mainstream on the big screen, and my six-year-old daughter was there to experience it. And I, th- I thought that was That's really... Awesome. Really a fun way to start his review and read the rest of it. Awardcircuit.com, Clayton Davis. But I think it meant a lot to Latinos that they finally get a mainstream movie. What the hell is Absolutely. everybody so long? But we could shake our fists at the studios, and we do. We try to often that it took this long to recognize women superheroes, recognize a Latino Pixar yeah. movie. You know, we try to, to put a spotlight on that, and we will continue to do so. But we understand also it's, it's you know, it means much more to many other people. And that's a perfect embodiment of it, and that's awesome to hear. I got goosebumps just hearing that quote. That was amazing. Yeah, great job, Clayton. Great job by everybody who made this film happen. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, want to know your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns about this, or anything else in the Pixar series, anything else in the MMO Empire, you can reach out to us. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram. MM and Oscar on Twitter. Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com. And on Reddit, we are available everywhere you hear podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, iTunes. i got to stop saying iTunes soon because Apple's going to junk it, apparently. So I guess Apple Podcasts is what I'm going to have to start working into my rant here. Mm-hmm. So we're available on Apple Podcasts. That shouldn't give me any reason to Apple stumble Podcast over my words. Apple presents Easter. <laughs> Arbor Day. <laughs> Arbor Day. <laughs> uh, tune in Stitcher, SoundCloud, all those fun places. If you have a couple minutes, if you appreciate what we do here, we would love a couple five-star reviews on They really on, help. Thank you. Except not on iTunes. On Apple Podcasts. I already Correct. just screwed it up. Yeah. I'm a fraud. No, uh, <laughs> you can learn with it. But truly do reach out to us. We love the reviews. We do read every comment, question, concern, review, everything you guys send us. Uh, it really does mean a lot to us, and we do read everything. Mike, let the good people know what's coming up from MMO next. Yeah, Pulp Fiction uh, is going to be our part two of the Tarantino series rewatch. and Basically the same plot as this. Basically the same thing. Yeah. We're going to really dive into a lot of the theorizing and the speculation, so that's going to be a lot of fun, I think. And, Mike, we're going to get into Toy Story 2 because we're going to procrastinate. <laughs> one last time. One last time from Cars. Now, we could do one one last time with Toy Story 3, but... We really... Listen, our intention... We put it on the schedule, finally. Our intention is to keep Toy Story 3 as the last one before Toy Story 4. Yeah, of course. That's the whole... that We had that from the inception of this idea. That's what we wanted to do. Now, I originally wanted Toy Story 2 and 3 to be... But fine. The yeah. reason I say that's our intention <laughs> is because... We'll see. We gotta do three we'll movies see what for happens. one episode. It's gonna be hard. How do we do that? So don't hold us to it, is all I'm saying. Don't be surprised, is all I'm saying. Uh, guys, when reality sucks, mm-hmm. you can come watch these movies with us. We're trying to take these stuff in this out of award season, make it a year-long fun thing for you to follow. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar. We'll check you out soon.